Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. You're so welcome if we haven't met yet. My name's Andy. I'm the senior pastor here. Um, if you've been here all summer and you're thinking, who's that guy? It has been a number of weeks since I've been opening God's Word with you guys. I've been in a few different places over, over the last number of weeks, but it is great to be here. Um, so we're thinking through a question that's really important. Um, what is the church? And um, maybe a more uh, raw version of, of that question that... Um, is a bit closer to some of the things you've been pondering, is why is church important? Um, certainly as we kind of emerged from the pandemic and all things that were, were COVID, uh, that question seemed to come up quite a lot for friends and people that I was journeying with as, had, as we'd kind of been deformed from what was our normal rhythm of Sunday church attendance. And because we started doing that live stream thing and you could kind of watch church whenever you want, nobody was here, so you didn't get the guilt of feeling like nobody saw me out and do people wonder what's going on. Um, we could watch it whenever we want. And so bike rides and walks and all sorts of other things started to happen on Sunday mornings. And, and then people started to ask me this question as we were talking about returning church and all that kind of stuff of, Andy, like, why, why is it important? Like, why, why, why does church uh, really, really matter? And so we're going to be kind of teaching into that question really for about the next 10 weeks. But here's something that's really important for you to understand. We have an agenda with this conversation that we are driving to a destination probably around the end of November where we're going to invite you to make a commitment um, to what we've taught through over these, these weeks. Hopefully, we'll do an okay job of explaining some of the things that uh, we think are really, really important to Jesus when it comes to uh, the church, what it prioritizes, how it functions. Uh, and then towards kind of uh, the end of November, we're going to create a moment where we can say, yeah, it's, we want to commit to that. And we want to commit to that in uh, this, this place. Um, but what is it? Why is it important? It may be no surprise to you that I actually, I love language. Um, that uh, we have this funny dynamic in, in our marriage where uh, sometimes Dana will repeat to me what she's heard me say and I'll say, that's not what I said. Like I chose the words that I said very specifically. Like the words are important. Words really, really matter. That the, the more familiar something is to a culture, the more language they have for it. I, I had a friend a long time ago who grew up in El Salvador. And the word for ice cream, snow, and rain, colloquially, they were all the same term. Um, whereas if you listen to people talk about the wet stuff that falls from the sky here, we've got mizzle and drizzle, it's lashing, it's pouring, it's spitting. You know, the, the more developed language is for a thing, the, the more familiar a people or a place are uh, with that thing. And our, our language it changes the words in our vocabulary. They, they kind of develop. I wonder if you ever notice if you get a new friend. I notice this with my kids all the time that they'll start using words that I've never heard before. And I'm like, I'm not talking about bad language, by the way. Some of you are like, it's that stage in your house, is it? No, no. Just sometimes they get a new friend and then they start talking about these things. And I'm like, where did you, where does that come from? And they're like, oh, this friend of mine, whatever. Um, in 2007, the Oxford Junior Dictionary replaced words like acorn, bramble, signet, dandelion, fern, heather, and moss. They were all removed from the Junior Dictionary. 
And they were replaced with words like blog, celebrity, chat room, database, and voicemail. Any of you feel sad about that? Like, I mean, if that's any kind of indication of our trajectory, it's a bit mad. When words like clover and crocus and chestnut are replaced in our young people's vocabulary with words like celebrity, chat room, and cut and paste, I think we are poor for it. Human nature needs nature. We're not robots. Um, Anyway, um, that's a whole other talk. Language tells us about things and the way we use the word church is really, really important. It tells us what we really think about when we, we think of church. And the reality is, for most of us, when we use the word church, what we are doing with it is we're describing something made of stones and windows and roofs. You know, you'll notice this when you're giving people directions. Go past the train station, you'll see a big church on your left, and then take the first right after that. It kind of betrays us a little bit because we constantly find ourselves using this word in a way that God never intended. It was never God's idea that the church in our imagination would be spires and steeples and stained glass windows or uh, even warehouses. My, My wee Nana, God bless her, I'm still not convinced she thinks I'm a real minister because we meet in a building like this. Church is to buildings what family is to home, right? Like the building is actually important. It matters that we have space to gather, but it's not church. Just like your home isn't your family. In fact, if your home was your family, it would probably be much easier for you. You know, make sure the oil or the gas is topped up, pay your electricity bill and everything will work fine. The dynamics of family are way trickier. Maybe I'm just saying too much about mine. But of course, they're linked, but they're not the same. Homes come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. But what makes a building a home and not an office is what it holds inside. And so it is with church buildings. What makes this church isn't the building. It's what it holds inside. Churches come in all kinds of shapes and sizes What makes something a church is not the stained glass window or the ginormous cross leaning up against a wall. What makes something a church is what's happening with the people inside it. And we're teaching through five kind of practices and priorities that we think are revealed to us in the New Testament of what makes something a church. Community, formation, worship, service, and generosity. It doesn't matter how old or how new the building, it doesn't matter how many people are, it doesn't matter where it actually geographically is. What makes something the local church is that it's gathered around Jesus, that it prioritizes community, formation, worship, service, and generosity, that it finds itself caught up both in a gathered context and in a scattered way in the mission of Jesus, demonstrating the reality of the present rule and reign of Jesus, which we call the kingdom of God on earth. These five practices that we're teaching through help us get a more full understanding of what the church is, what the church is for, and why the church is important. Surely, Andy, I can just do Jesus and me, bike rides on Sundays and 
walks by the beach and a bit of prayer time and a, a bit of Bible. It works for me. It's fine. Well, not really. Because this thing we want to talk about today around formation requires community. But it's even deeper than that. And I don't know where the appropriate time for me to share this next point will be in this series. So I want to kind of just take a moment to lean into this here. Why is it important that we prioritize this as kind of weird and uh, hot and cold as it can sometimes be? It's not a surprise to you that I know that sometimes you leave here going, that was amazing. And sometimes you leave here going, wish I'd ridden my bike. But why, why does it matter that we actually prioritize this thing? Because church is so much more than what we are doing right now. But this is really, really important. And one of the things that I've reflected on in my life, and I'll be really honest with you, in the last 10 years of me leading this church, there have been intense seasons of uh, challenge, of pain, of doubt. There's been moments in my life where I have huge questions about all kinds of big things and you're maybe going, time for us to find a new church. (laughs) My commitment to this is one of the things that has held me connected to Jesus in those times. That I can almost guarantee, in fact, I know it because I've seen it happen time and time and time again in people's lives that in seasons of doubt, in seasons of questions, in seasons when it doesn't quite make sense or life has just got hard, when we unplug from this thing, we begin the journey of unplugging our lives from Jesus. And furthermore, for those of us who are parents, we neuter them from any legacy in faith. When we say that showing up to worship together in community is on the same par as swimming or bike rides or some other thing, it is no surprise whenever they become adults, they're like, yeah, sometimes if it suits, their faith doesn't really matter. Now, I'm not saying that you have to prioritize here, but I am saying if you want a vibrant life with Jesus in your life, being connected and faithful to a local expression of his church is critical in how we do that in good times and in hard My commitment to church has carried me through and out the other side of some really difficult seasons in my walk with God. It's as you guys have come up to me and said, Andy, I just want to pray for you. Just have an encouraging word or ask me how things are going or those sorts of things. It's in these moments that we get to actually be the church for each other. And it's so much more with that. But here's my point. Life with God gets measured in decades, not moments. And so it is with church that there are moments when we don't feel like it. That's the moment when our habits, our rhythms, our priorities carry us through. For any of you who are married, um, just pretend I'm not talking to you if your spouse is in the room right now, you will know that there are seasons in your marriage when it's hard, when it doesn't feel like the thing or the place that you really wanna be. What determines whether you're still married in 10, 15, 20, 30 years is the choices you make when you don't feel like it. And so it is, so it is with church. 
If you have a Bible, turn with you to Colossians chapter three. It's page 818 in the Black Bibles on your seats. Colossians three, we're gonna read from verse one through to the end of uh, verse 14. Come Holy Spirit. Colossians three, verse one. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your, sorry, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if anyone has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Amen. This is a meaty uh, passage and we don't actually have the time to walk through every layer of it, but we're talking today about the priority and practice of spiritual formation, of us actually being formed into the likeness of Jesus, that the church is supposed to be a place of formation. What is the church? It's a place where we are formed into the likeness of Jesus. Why is church important? Because God uses it to make us more like Jesus. You see, God is doing something in the world and the church gathered and the church scattered, we believe in this community, is the primary agent by which the mission of God goes forth. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared on the side of a mountain, called his followers to him, and he said these famous words, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. It's a really interesting sentence that essentially means this, I am now in charge. All authority in heaven and on earth is now mine. Jesus is essentially saying, I am now king. I am the king over everything. And your job is to go and demonstrate the reality of my rule in every section of society and corner of culture. That's what he commissions his disciples to go and do. Go and show everyone that I am real and that I am ruling. That's what God is doing in the world. Why is formation important? Because God wants to trust you with his power. Now, that makes us all a little bit Uh, afraid, I hope. (laughs) In Northern Ireland, we're not great at that. Like we'd much rather the kind of paradigm or gospel that says Jesus lived, 
died, was resurrected, ascended, poured his spirit out so that you could sneak in the back door and kind of get some crumbs from a table. I actually think that's where we feel most comfortable, but it's not the gospel. That it's God's idea that he would actually, through the Holy Spirit, put his power in us so that we are able to demonstrate the reality of Jesus's rule and reign. When I was very small, my grandfather took my brother and I into a field to teach us how to fire a shotgun. I think I was six or seven. In my little mind, I was convinced I was far too young for this kind of behavior. I didn't want to touch the gun, never mind fire the gun. There was something about the power that it held that I knew I shouldn't be trusted with. Needless to say, when I finally pulled the trigger, it knocked me flat on my back. You see, when we see ourselves clearly, the wise among us will not want God's power. Because we know who we are. We know that we're flawed. We know that we're, we're broken. We're, somebody out there would be more qualified or better able to wield that than me. You have probably heard the saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Of course, that's complete and utter nonsense. Power doesn't corrupt at all. Power just reveals. And the more power you have, the more able you are to show everyone who you really are. It's one of the reasons why when we start to think about God wanting to entrust us with his power, that many of us rightly go, oh God, no, not me. Power reveals who we are. And God wants to trust us with his power. That is why becoming like Jesus really matters. It was Jesus who said, all authority is mine. When Jesus had power, what did he do with it? How much of his time, energy, and effort was sent using his power to serve himself? Of course, absolutely none of it. The New Testament says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, absolute power in Jesus revealed absolutely that God is a servant. And if we are going to be trusted with his power, then we have got to learn how to become servants. Not just how to serve in moments, but how to actually have the character, the nature, the impulse of servanthood in every single part of our lives. It's a massively high bar. I know, and one that we fail at all the time. But this is why formation is so important. God wants to trust us with his power. So how do we do it? What does it actually look like for us to set our lives on a path where we become more like Jesus? Because the really awkward truth about the Christian life is we are supposed to be becoming more like Jesus. So for those of you who follow Jesus, maybe here's a helpful question. I hope it's not too uh, on the knuckle. Is Are you more like Jesus this September than you were last September? 
because you're supposed to be. But the reality is for most of us, actually, our Christian lives are some form of kind of hot and cold and somewhere in the middle. We are supposed to be becoming more like Jesus. How do we actually do that? Look at Colossians 3 verse 1. Paul says, set your hearts on things above. And then he goes on to say, set your minds on things above. The order of that is not coincidental. Set our hearts, our longings on things above and then set our minds on things above. The theologian Jamie Smith wrote a brilliant book several years ago titled, You Are What You Love. You are what you love. He's trying to help those of us who follow Jesus re-anchor ourselves in a biblical understanding of Christian formation and discipleship. You are what you love, he says, but you may not love what you think. You are what you love, but you may not love what you think. I think it was Descartes, the philosopher, that said, I think, therefore I am. But actually, the reality is, I love, therefore I think. That we think about the things that we love, our thoughts come from a deeper place in our lives. And the beginning of formation comes with us assessing what exactly do we love? Who exactly do we love? Do we love what we think we love? Another commentator I read this week said this, perhaps the greatest weakness mankind currently faces is that we tend to live unexamined lives. We tend to live unexamined lives that we don't take time to think through, are the things that I say are priorities and values in my life actually borne out in the choices I make and the priorities of my week? Everything starts with our heart. Everything starts with the question, what do you love? Who do you talk to most in your life? What do you talk most about in your life? After your bills are paid, what do you spend your money on? Outside of work, what do you do with your time? These things will tell you very clearly what you love. It's really simple to examine our lives. Think about who you talk to most, what you talk about most, what you spend your money on, and what you do with your time. These things are a revelation of our loves. Set your hearts on things above. Learn to love what God loves. Learn how to love what God loves. And if you want to answer the question that follows, well, what does God love? Just go and read the life of Jesus. Watch what makes him angry. Watch what makes him sad. Watch what makes him happy. All these things are revelation into the heart of God. What does God love? And do I love those things? Set your minds on things above. Learn to think about what God thinks about. Well, that requires you to go and do that work too. What does God actually think about? How much of my time is spent thinking about uh, myself, my problems, our political instability, all sorts of other things. And guys, none of that is bad. But often it just gets in the way and can just be noise. How much time do you spend talking or thinking about things that you can actually do nothing about? I wonder what you think the most spiritual thing in your life is. If someone asks you that tomorrow in work, 
What's the most spiritual thing in your life? I wonder, what would you maybe say? Your Bible, quiet time, going to church. I mean, the truth is the most spiritual thing in our lives are our choices. The choices. That you have choice. You get to choose what's important to you. You get to choose what to spend your time on. Uh, we're at an interesting stage in our life as our uh, eldest has just went to big school. And so the conversations about phones and technology is rampant in our lives right now. And one of the things that like, it's, it's a bit of a button for Dana and I, right? So I would just warn you in case we end up talking to you about it. So uh, that drives us absolutely mad when we talk to parents and what they're doing, how they're doing, is when they say something like, I mean, I really don't want this or I don't want that, but what choice do I have? I'm like, loads. You have so many choices. Now, the reality is you may get uncomfortable with the direction that certain choices take you. One of the things I say to the kids all the time is every choice has fangs. Choose what you want to get bitten by. There are consequences to all of our choices, but the reality is we have way more agency than we give ourselves credit. It's much easier to hide in the place of what choice do I have than actually wrestle with, no, no, we have agency and we can make choices. We're gonna have to live with the consequence of those choices. We're gonna have to help the people around us live with the consequence of those choices. But we have choices. One of the other things that is very alive in our wee family at the minute is followers of Jesus are different. And in my experience, one of the things that neuters the potency and effectiveness of the church in this part of the world is our longing for our kids to just fit in. They're not supposed to fit in. None of us are. They're supposed to be different. Now, look, I'm not saying that there's no uh, nuance or compassion in how we work all of this stuff out. But so often our lenses and our choices and our practices actually take us in a direction that God is actually trying to take you in the opposite direction, where our lives are supposed to be distinct where we get to make choices to prioritize things, values, practices, rhythms, and habits that are very different to what's going on in the prevailing culture all around us with no sense of superiority or arrogance. But with humility and with gentleness, we hold these are our convictions about life. And we'd much prefer that you were able to pick out different birds in the sky and name them than talk about the latest TikTok dance. That's our lives. One of our kids was asked at a birthday party <laughs> in the springtime, what's your favorite YouTube channel? And they replied, uh, don't really have one. I'm more of a country kid. <laughs> I was so proud. <laughs> Christian formation requires devotion. We are to be ruthless with the things in our lives that keep us from God. Paul in this passage literally says, put them to death. Like it's a bit intense, isn't it? Like the Christian life is supposed to be shaped like death and resurrection. Since you have died to your old self, put to death these things. 
This rhythm of dying and living and dying and living is where real life is found. Just think for a moment, when was the last time you felt most alive? I can guarantee you it wasn't watching Netflix. It was usually in places where we're uncomfortable. Stuck in the rain, freezing cold, very aware of your frailty and humanity, but alive. We have been seduced by lies that say worship comfort. God's saying, watch what happens when you die. And I give you new life. And it's like someone give you 3D glasses and all of a sudden things make way more sense. We are to be ruthless with the things in our lives that keep us from God. We went on holidays in July to uh, a cottage in the wilds of Donegal and it had no electricity. Now we knew that, okay, that wasn't like we got there and it was like, oh no, it doesn't work. Um, it was 45 minutes to the nearest village. Uh, we saw more sheep f- over the 10 days than we saw people and uh, we kind of kept the kind of ship on an even keel by having a good row about half 10 in the morning and about half three in the afternoon. Just in case any of you are thinking, They've got some sort of family magic going on. It was all of the real parts of family life as we swam in the sea and walked the mountains and argued and fell out and made up and did all the things that families do. It took us about three and a half hours to get there on the Friday as we drove. And um, it's, it's known as kind of a ghost or a famine village. So the little cottage has been there for a couple of hundred years and looks exactly kind of as it did uh, then. And surrounded by seven or eight other cottages have since fallen down. So you're surrounded by all these little ruins of this. It was a proper wee village back in the day. And on the first night, got the kids off the bed and we'd lit the farmers, having a glass of wine, and candles are lit, uh, not for romance, but just so we could see. And, um, and honestly, I, like, as things kind of settled down, I just started to feel a wee bit uneasy. I couldn't really say more than that, just, in, just felt a bit uneasy. Next day, with three very lively kids. So we're swimming in the sea and we're all over the mountain and all that kind of stuff. And then evening comes, do food, get them to bed. Things start to get really quiet again. And uh, I started to notice this sort of feeling again. It's just, just not feeling great. And I probably couldn't describe it more than that. I just felt uncomfortable, you know. And third night, same thing, but a little bit worse. And now I'm thinking, there's some spiritual going on here. Like, you know, it's called a ghost village. I, you know, maybe... <laughs> Maybe, maybe I need to pray, you know. And so the next morning, fourth morning, Dana and I were having a coffee. I said, hey, are you noticing then at nighttime? And she said, like what? And I said, I don't know, like just anything. And she was like, well, I mean, it's quiet. I was like, right, okay. So fourth night, same thing, worse than the third night. I'm like, something is definitely going on here. So the next morning, I woke up and said to Dana, babe, something's not right here. Like, I'm, I'm actually feeling really uneasy at night times and... You know, it's, it's, I, don't, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's good. And she said, I think you should go for a walk. And it's uh, good wife advice. So I went for a walk on my own. And I was kind of praying and thinking and reflecting. And I started to think about the previous three months. Kind of April, May, June. And what that was, what that was like. And truthfully, it was really intense. Like I was working so hard. Some of it was not fun at all. And culminated with new where lots of you were at, which was loads of fun, but also was loads of work. And my kind of April, May, June, my evenings looked something like this. Do dinner, 
get the kids down, end the study for a few hours, on the phone, all sorts of issues, challenges, problems, and about half nine, quarter to ten, land on the sofa, turn on Netflix, and start kind of watching Netflix and scrolling Instagram. That's what, literally, that's what it looked like every night. And uh, that's, I'm not excited about that, I'm proud about that, but that's what, it, that's what it was. And I started thinking about the previous five nights where I had literally just gone cold turkey from all technology. And I came back and Dana was like, how was your walk? And I said, I, th- I think I know what's going on. And she's been making fun of me ever since that I was looking for demons and God was like, it's you. <laughs> but it was so true that just in the pace and busyness of life, I had no idea actually how I was doing. None. Just on to the next problem. Solve the next thing. Deal with the next. And then all of a sudden, you literally just rip the plug out. You're sitting in this little cottage and the only things to distract you in the evenings is some kind of conversation or tending to the wee stove. And that was it. And I spent the next kind of rest of the holiday just kind of, I guess, coming home to where I was. And when I got home from Donegal, I deleted Instagram off my phone and paid way more attention to what's going on in the evening. Is Instagram bad? Of course not. Was it bad for me? Yes. Paul says there are things in our lives that keep us from connecting deeply and intimately with Jesus. And he says you need to put those things to death. Don't play with them. Don't try to manage them ruthlessly eliminate them from your life. Now, for lots of you, that's got nothing to do with social media. It'll be something else. Some of you are drinking too much, and it's a place to hide. It's maybe not a problem yet, but you know that there's something about that glass of wine in the evening that just makes you feel like life is better. That's the beginning of a problem in lots of ways. There are things in our lives that get in the way And Paul says, don't play with them. Put them to death. After we do that, verse 12, he says this, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That there are things in our lives that we need to kill. And then there are things in our lives that we need to put on. Literally put them on. And for some of you who don't, feel very kind or compassionate, put it on, fake it. It's literally what he's saying, put it on. Watch what happens in your emotions when you smile at people versus scowl at people. Now, psychologists or psychiatrists would probably give you an explanation for this that I can't, but the reality is, oftentimes our emotions follow our behavior. That as we look at people and smile, something in us feels a little bit warmer. And if it doesn't the first time, try it again. Paul says we have to learn how to put these things on, to practice these virtues, to prioritize kindness. Spiritual formation doesn't work like this. Jesus, make me a better person. You walk into the office, someone annoys you. Shut up! That's not how it works. Then we're like, God doesn't answer my prayers. We have to learn how to practice it. That whenever someone cuts you off in traffic and you're already late, that you're able to say, thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity to practice forgiveness. (laughs) Spouses, you have permission to challenge each other. I'm just joking. My office will be full of marriages falling apart. Andy says, you need to practice forgiveness. Here you go. (laughs) 
But this is how it works. As we choose to prioritize rhythms, habits, practices, some of the most annoying people in your lives are gifts from God. That's not a joke. You're like, what, have I, what, have I, what am I doing wrong? I'm surrounded by people that are getting on my nerves. Just watch this. Pray for God to develop your patience. And watch how infuriated you get as things come into your lives. Because that's how it works. You don't build muscles without working out. You don't build compassion without practicing it. You don't build forgiveness without practicing it. You don't become kind without practicing it. As we grow in these things, God trusts us more with his power. Let me get really practical for a second. How do we do this? How do we grow in these things? How do we put them on? How do we practice them? Somebody told me recently that they, when they're getting dressed in the morning, don't ask me how I got in this conversation, okay? But we were in it. That when they get dressed in the morning, they start at the waist and they do waist up first. Is that weird to anybody? I thought that was weird, right? Anybody in here get dressed waist up first? Yeah. <laughs> Sam McConaughey, I can't believe you admitted that. The reality is we all have all sorts of weird quirks and habits and things that we repeat every single day that we do them without thinking. Here's a mad idea, right? Super cheesy, super weird, but watch what happens if you do this. Start to name your clothes virtues, like socks are kindness and trousers are humility and your top half is gentleness. And every day as you're getting dressed, you prayerfully practice putting on kindness and humility and gentleness. See, the thing is, most of us have no actual plan for how we're going to grow in Christ-likeness. We just think if we go to church, we pray a bit, then it will happen. We need a structure to hold this journey for us. Post-it notes of verses on mirrors while we're brushing our teeth, naming our clothes, weird things. This is where we're not like everybody else gets expressed. We're like, you do what? I forgot to put humility on today, guys. Hold on a second. I need to go to the bathroom. We need habits and rituals and rhythms. It's one of the reasons why I poke you all the time about bringing a physical Bible to church. It's not because there's more magic in this than the scriptures on your phone but it's that this actually requires you to hold something that you say is sacred that's not on the same level as your emails, your text messages, and something else. It's not magic in it. It's just how our lives are anchored and rooted that we have practices that help form us, that hold our intentions. Because in the busyness of life, If we don't have practices and habits to hold it, it just gets forgotten. And you end up haunted by your own self. If you're able, will you stand? There's uh, two, two things that I would love to do um, just before we respond in worship. The first one is that I want to invite the Holy Spirit to point out things in your lives that are getting in the way. But here's the deal, right? Um, don't join in with this unless you're prepared to do something about it because once you get a sense of it, 
the responsibility is yours. It's not mine. That when we invite God to say that thing's getting in the way, we now have a responsibility to do something about that thing. And here's my hunch. Yeah, there may be some of you that have some serious, serious problems going on right now in terms of um, habits and behaviors in your life that are destructive and damaging to you and your family. I know that's probably in the room. But the reality is for most of us, they're morally neutral things. They aren't bad things. They're maybe even good things that have now become God things. And as God puts his finger on those things, you have a responsibility to do something about it. I want to do is invite God to help us be really creative about practices that can hold our intentions. That as we prioritize uh, this thing called formation, um, that, that we would have habits and rhythms that could do that. So let's pray together. If you want to, just open your hands in front of you. Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would highlight the things in our lives that keep us from you. We give you permission to do that. Give you permission to point out things in our lives that keep us from you. For any of you that this is a little bit new, um, just to help you um, know what to expect. This isn't gonna sound like a voice inside your head going, Instagram. You're gonna have a sense, an inkling, an idea. Something will come from left field that you weren't thinking about that's gonna pop into your head. And probably if it's really keeping you from God, when it pops in, you're gonna have a sinking oh no feeling. Because something important to you, but it's become too important. And you need to let go of it for a while. And so Lord, we welcome that right now. Holy Spirit, reveal to us the things that keep us from you. thank you that you are wildly creative. Would you fill our imagination now with ways, with habits, practices, new ideas that could hold our intention of wanting to become more like Jesus so that we can be trusted with your power. Spirit.